Good morning and welcome you folks up at Calvary Quakertown. You're probably feeling a year older this week since your big taco party last week. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't have tacos yet, but we're having lobster and filet this morning and we hope you all enjoy your afternoon driving home as we're feasting today. Well, we're coming in for a landing in our prequel series, and this isn't quite the end. We'll wrap the series up next week, but this is the penultimate end to our prequel series. And in the series, we're looking at the backstory to the Jesus story in the New Testament. And the book of Judges isn't the only part of the backstory, but it's often a neglected part of the backstory. And we can understand some things about who Jesus is and what he did by understanding Judges a little better. Well, you've probably uh, been working through Judges or at least thinking through it on the weekends with us. And as you do, you probably think, uh, but this is kind of a dark and depressing series. You know, it's not a cycle. It's kind of a spiral downward into doom and gloom. Well, rather than end in doom and gloom, I thought uh, as we're coming in for a landing, we would at least look at one shining ray of light in the midst of the story, and we're going to look at some light in the darkness by looking at the book of Ruth. You may think of Charles, or that's not in Judges. I know it's not in Judges, but the book of Ruth occurred at the time of the Judges. In fact, the book of Ruth begins with in the time of the judges, in the days when the judges ruled. And so it's almost as if the author of Judges says, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that gloom, here is a light of grace and of hope. Here's a light of good news in the midst of that downward spiral. So we're going to look at the book of Ruth this morning, and we're going to kind of work our way through, not in detail. We're mainly going to emphasize the beginning and the end. So if you have your Bibles... Uh, or your phone, or your tablet, whatever. Find Ruth chapter 1, and I'll read the first uh, number of verses there. Then we'll jump over and read some of the verses toward the end of the book in chapter 4. So follow along. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and then we'll jump over to chapter 4 when I tell you. So here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's home, May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and, and said to her, We will go back with you and to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. 
even if I thought there was any hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now turn over to the end. And let's uh, read a few verses from Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has had a son. and They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Now, as you read those two sections, you're probably asking, if you were paying attention, um, how can you get there from here? Like, how in the world do you get to a wedding, a birth, joy and excitement from chapter 1 when there's nothing but emptiness and funerals and death and grief? How do you get there from there? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're going to talk about. You see, in the book of Judges, we have that spiral that we talked about. And the spiral is the people rebel and then they're oppressed. And one of the oppressors earlier in the book was Moab. Oh my goodness, Moab's one of the oppressors. And then the people cry out for help, often not in genuine repentance, but they cry out. And then God rescues. And we've said a number of times, it's not really a cycle, it's a downward spiral. Things getting worse and worse. At the beginning of the book, We've got judges that are basically good. We've got Othniel. We've got Deborah. By the time you get to the end of the book, we can barely find anything good in the judges at all. Jephthah, Samson. But Ruth is a light shining in the midst of all that darkness. But if we're going to understand the light, we need to understand something about the road she traveled. So let's talk about the road that Ruth traveled. The book starts with the first scene. There's no bread. There's a famine in Bethlehem. Now, uh, my guess is most of you don't know Hebrew. You don't know Hebrew well. Um, but you have to know some of the words and some of the names in order for the book and some of the names to kind of open up for you. The word Bethlehem actually means house, Beth, bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. And uh, you got to understand, if we... In Israel, Bethlehem is located in an area where lots and lots of crops grow. So they've got wheat and barley, grapes, almonds, all kind of stuff grow around Bethlehem. It's, it's nice and flat. The, fer, the soil's very fertile. Lots of stuff gets produced, and you need bread in order to live. How does Ruth begin? There's no bread in the house of bread. It's kind of ironic, right? 
Bethlehem, the house of bread, has no bread. Um, so that's how the book begins. It begins with a famine. So Elimelech decides he's going to take his family and move to Moab. Now, you've got to understand, Moab was not a friendly country to Israel. In fact, Moab was often at enmity, and they were enemies of Israel. Elimelech decides he's going to take his family because he wants his family to live. He's going to take his family to find life in the place of the enemies, and he goes over to Moab. So let me ask you dads, how do you think that conversation went around the dinner table? Hey, boys, by the way, we're moving to Moab. And the sons are saying, what? But dad, I didn't finish high school yet, right? I, I think I can make the varsity next year. What about my friends? When are we coming back? Can I take my pet guinea pig? Can I take my pet cat? Heck no. Um, but we're going to Moab. And he packs up the troops and off they go. So there's no bread in the house of bread. What happens after they get to Moab? Well, in quick succession, there are three funerals. They're not there long, and Elimelech dies. Okay, now here's where the names come in, and it's helpful. The name Elimelech means, my God, El, is King Melech. Elimelech's name is, my God is King, but because there's a famine in the land, and Elimelech doesn't trust his God that's king, he leaves the promised land and goes to Moab because he doesn't trust God, but that's his name. He didn't live up to his name real well. His wife's name, Naomi, actually means pleasant or sweet. Just call her sweetheart. Naomi's sweetheart. My God is king, is married to sweetheart. That's a pretty good beginning. Now, we're not quite sure how the boys got their names. Malon means sick. Like, I'm not sure when he came out, if he was sickly looking or what. They named their son Sick. Oh, it gets worse. Killian's name means dying. <laughs> now imagine introducing this family. Hey, guys, in Moab, here's my wife, sweetheart, and my two boys, sick and dying. <laughs> now, we're, we're not sure if they were kind of sickly when they were young or not, but no, notice the irony. Elimelech fears that because there's a famine, the family will die. He moves them to Moab, the family dies. My God is king, married to sweetheart, two sons sick and dying, moved to Moab, and there are three funerals in quick succession. You know what that means? It means Naomi's life can't get any worse. Naomi is a widow in a foreign country. She's been there a long time. Her husband dies, but she still has her sons. Her sons marry Moabite women, but the Moabites were the bad guys. They weren't allowed in the temple. They couldn't go to synagogue. They couldn't worship with the people. They marry outcasts. But still, Naomi can hope for grandkids, right? But her two sons die before there are any grandkids. There's no social security. There's no safety net. Naomi's the worst kind of widow. She's old. Nobody's going to marry her now. Her, daughter, her sons are gone. Nobody's going to support her. Her life is an absolute disaster. You ever been there? Everywhere you turn, it's a dead end. Everywhere you turn, it's a problem. Well, that's Naomi's life. So Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, after she hears there's bread again, back in the house of bread, she wants to send them back to their families because the families will take care of them, right? Right? And so they'll go back home to mom and dad. Mom and dad will support them. And they're young enough, maybe they'll find another husband. 
Orpah goes back. But Ruth won't go. Ruth won't go. And that really brings us to the third scene, and that's courage and love. Courage and love is actually shown on the part of Ruth. In fact, my guess is even if you've never read the book of Ruth, you're kind of familiar with these verses right in chapter 1. You probably heard, if you never read the Bible but you go to a bunch of weddings, you probably heard this, right? Somewhere in the wedding, it'll say this. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I'll be buried. May the Lord do. Right? It kind of sounds like wedding stuff. I'm always tempted when I hear that at a wedding to, wedding to say. But let me tell you the context. Let me tell you about sick and dying. Let me tell you about three funerals in Moab. Not trusting God. Going to the enemy camp. Let me tell you all about. Uh, but that, that doesn't show up in the weddings. But we read these really good verses. But they are verses of courage and love. Courage and love on Ruth's part, isn't it? Now remember, Ruth is from Moab. If she's going to go back with Naomi to Bethlehem, she now is going to be the outsider. And in a sense, here's what Ruth has to be saying. If I stay here in Moab, I keep my life, and Naomi loses hers. Because she's going to go back as an old widow with nobody to take care of her, after experiencing three funerals. But Ruth says, okay, but if I lose my life, Naomi can have a life. And so think of what Ruth is volunteering to do. Ruth voluntarily gives up her life for the life of her mother-in-law. And she says, no way. I'm going back with you. And she becomes a Moabite, living in, Jer- living in Bethlehem, right, where all the Jews hang out and they hate the Moabites, she goes back and she becomes the caretaker and the one that provides life for Naomi. But that's, that is courage and love, the likes of which most of us don't really know. Well, they eventually get back, and it's kind of an empty arrival. Um, Here's what uh, Naomi says when she gets back. Don't call me Naomi, right? Pleasant, happy, beautiful, sweetheart. Don't call me that. Call me Mara. You know what Mara means? Bitter. Bitter. How many of you have ever met a bitter old hag? (laughs) Now, if you're here with one, I really feel sorry for you. (laughs) And you don't want to look at her right now. Uh, well, you know, bitter old women are not fun, right? I mean, bitter old women, I mean, hours seem like weeks. Minutes seem like days, right? Everything's a problem. Every... So what does Naomi say? Just call me bitter old hag. And who made her life bitter? God did. God made her life bitter. If Ruth is the example of faith, Naomi's the example of honesty in the book. And we need that because many of you, maybe not many, some of you lied already right on church property this morning. And you lied when somebody said, so how are you doing? And you said, fine, and that's a lie. Here's my guess. None of you said, how are you doing? I hate God. None of you said that. That's kind of what Naomi said though, right? God ruined my life. We were in Bethlehem. We lived in the house of bread. 
And old Elimelech, he was kind of, his God was king and he was okay with that. And we had these two kids and we gave them these weird names. But we were hoping that they would not become their names. They'd be something different. And we tried to find life. But we went to Moab and God just ruined our lives. God's after us. He's not for us. He's against us. Now, I know sometimes you feel like that, but we don't have the courage to speak like that. Naomi speaks with honesty. Her life's bitter. And God made it bitter. And she's honest. So if Ruth helps us understand faith, Naomi helps us understand honesty. Well, then there's an expensive proposal that kind of comes up. Enter Boaz. Boaz. Now, we didn't read the chapters on Boaz, but the name Boaz means man's man. Boaz was a man's man. He didn't have any sweater vest in his closet. <laughs> he didn't drink decaf, right? I mean, he's a man's man. He drove a man's man. He had a giant SUV. He didn't drive some little prissy green car around. He's a man's man, and he was a wealthy man's man. He owned a giant field where people were. He was a good businessman. He had lots of money, and he was very caring and understanding. He was compassionate. And so he followed scrupulously what the Old Testament said. And so rather than in his fields picking up every little crumb to the edge, he left a lot of extra in the field so that the poor people could come and gather stuff from his field and that they would be able to live. And that's how he meets Ruth. Ruth shows up collecting the scraps in his field. And he takes notice and he says, oh, she's not from around here. Oh, I know, I know. That's Naomi's daughter-in-law. Naomi's alive today because of her. And look at that. She is sacrificially working almost like a servant, gathering up the crumbs from the field to go back and care for and give life to her mother. That's amazing. Well, eventually they kind of hit it off, have a couple of conversations, and then the expensive proposal comes. In a very culturally unexpected way, Ruth does the proposing. Now look, that, that may not be that weird today, but that was really weird back then. So how does Ruth do it? Well, the way Ruth does it is, now remember, she's kind of working, slaving in the field, so she's all sweated up most of the time, Boaz sees her, all kind of mud sticking on her face, her hair all funkified. Uh, <laughs> So she figures out, if I'm going to make a proposal, I need to look back. And she goes all out, right? She goes tanning, gets her nails done, hair foiled, you know, puts on lots of perfume, takes a bath, cleans her clothes. She shows up to a men's only kind of place and proposes to Boaz. Now, here's something I always try to figure out. Boaz is compassionate. He's moral. He's upstanding. He's wealthy. He's all the things that we want our daughters to marry, right? I mean, Boaz is a great guy. He's old, but he's single. Like, how'd that happen? Maybe he had really bad teeth, or maybe he had a giant goiter. We don't know what he had, but for some reason, he's not married. Ruth comes and proposes, but it's an expensive proposal. It's expensive because if he says yes, he has to buy back all of the land that Elimelech lost when he sold it to go to Moab. But the land that he buys will now be in Malan's name, not his name. You see, he needs to kind of raise up descendants for Elimelech and Naomi. 
And so when he purchases the field, it kind of leaves his estate and goes into the, the Malin estate. That's why the other guy in the book doesn't want to do it because, you know, you're kind of taking some of your stuff and you're having to divide it here. But Boaz says yes to the proposal. And so he goes and he buys the field. And along with buying the field, he takes Ruth to be his wife. And as we read at the end, they have a child. And that child becomes an ancestor of King David who took care of sheep near Bethlehem and whose great-great-great-great-grandson was born there and all the other shepherds there saw the angels who told them to go to Bethlehem and find the king of kings, and they did. Somehow, in Jesus' line is a woman from Moab, a mother-in-law named Naomi, who had three funerals in quick succession and thought her life was in the toilet. Sounds just like God, doesn't it? God's fingerprints are all over this story. So Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer or the guardian redeemer. And that is he purchases back the field. He then becomes the guardian of the family and he redeems what was lost. You know, we often think of redemption as kind of a religious word, right? Because we only talk about it in church. But redemption was actually a financial word. And when you got yourself in trouble, got yourself in debt, a family member, a, a kinsman, a guardian, could pay your debt and get you free. They could pay for the land you lost and get it back. If you were a slave, they could buy your freedom. That's what redeemers did. It's a financial deal. So Boaz says, if I keep all my stuff... Ruth and her mother-in-law have a terrible life. But if I lose some of my stuff, they will have a great life. And Boaz, kind of like Ruth, gives up his life so other people can have life. We are to continue what Jesus started. Kind of familiar themes, even, it's, even though it's in the backstory, right? All right, well, let's tease out some lessons. The first lesson... Uh, and if you read the book right through, you'll certainly see this. God loves to do the extraordinary through the ordinary. And here's what I mean. You read through Ruth, here's what you find. No miracles. There's not a single miracle in the whole book. No dreams in the book. No visions in the book. There's nothing miraculous in the book. There's no real revelation in the book. There's nothing. It's ordinary people doing ordinary things. Ordinary funerals. Ordinary famines. Ordinary travel. I mean, they weren't just lifted from Moab back and from Bethlehem to Moab. They walked. Ordinary people doing ordinary things. But God loves to do the extraordinary through the ordinary. Now, here's our problem. We live in a day in a culture where we're told that everything we are and everything we have, especially our kids, they're all extraordinary. You ever notice that? Uh, but we know they're not. We just play the game, right? Let me give you a couple examples. Raise your hand if you've ever gone to one of your kids' concerts when they were in school. Raise your hand. Okay, good. Now, here's how those concerts normally work, right? It goes like this. It was awesome. The musical selection, the dexterity of those elementary school kids, the composition, the themes, it was absolutely incredible. No, it wasn't. 
It was awful. I've been there, right? And in fact, I leave thinking, why don't they play songs that people know? And then I realize, maybe they were. We just didn't recognize them. <laughs> and then it comes to athletics. My kid is incredible. No, he's not. He probably is an average. She probably won't even make the median, right? No kid in this room who has a parent in this room will make it to the major leagues. I hate to break that to you, uh, but none of them are going to make it. You're all just kind of, that's wishful thinking. We have ordinary kids. And if you really want to see the extraordinary pile or crock of whatever, uh, just go to a high school graduation or a college graduate that's coming up on that season. And here's how to speakers, I, I've been to enough of these, I know. I am so honored to stand before this amazing class of graduates. In the past hundred years that I've been alive, I have never seen such a group of talented, skilled people. The world is at your feet. The sky is your limit. There are kids, what do you mean? They're less than ordinary, or ordinary at best. But here's the good news. God loves ordinary. In fact, the more extraordinary, sometimes the more difficult God's job is, right? Because the first thing he has to do with extraordinary people is to convince you you're not all that you think you are. And once you begin to think more soberly about yourself and you realize you're a little less than ordinary, then maybe you become usable. But those that are extraordinary, actually, from a human perspective, they've, God has a hard time with them. Because in order to experience all that God has, you have to admit that what you have is nothing. And you bring nothing to him in order to get his everything. But people that think they're extraordinary, they have a lot of stuff they want to bring. Well, as long as you're bringing something, you can't come. So let's get in touch with our ordinariness, all right? And let's say, you know what? Yeah, we're maybe a little below average. But that's a good thing, because God loves ordinary. And the extra, extraordinary things God does in the ordinary are amazing. That really is amazing. Second lesson. God usually doesn't work according to our expectations or time. You ever notice that? Look, I don't know about you, I hate that. Like, doesn't God realize that if he would just follow my script, this world would be a lot better off, right? Don't you ever think like that? Oh, it's only me, right? Um, but God doesn't work according to our expectations. So here's my question as I read through Ruth. Do you ever think Naomi said, God, are you there? God, do you care? What's going on? I mean, we grew up back in your promised land. There wasn't a whole lot of promise going on when I was there. We moved to Moab, and I go to funeral after funeral after funeral. My life is an absolute mess. God, do you care? Can you do anything about it? I mean, I heard other people say that you're sovereign, you're in control of everything. You're really a good, loving God. I'm not saying any of that. You ever think like that or pray like that? Remember, Naomi gets us in touch with honesty. Maybe what God's waiting for is, us, is for us to be a whole lot more honest when we pray. But by the time you get to the end of the book, Naomi's holding a baby on her lap. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is married to a stud named Boaz. And in just a couple generations, King David will be listed in their line. And just play, fast forward that tape, and you'll come to King Jesus, who brings salvation 
and reconciliation to the world. Naomi could never have figured all that out. She was in touch with her pain and her suffering, but God says, you just let the expectations in the timetable to me, all right? I got it handled. My guess is today, Naomi wouldn't change one single thing about her book and her life. And I know if you're like me, you want to change a million things about your life and your job and your spouse and your kids and your finances today, right? Maybe a million years from now, we'll look back and say, it happened just the way God wanted. And my expectations weren't met, but I'll tell you what, God's were and his are a whole lot better than mine. So let's give God the benefit of the doubt in the meantime, huh? Third lesson. Good news is always preceded by bad news. That's how it goes. In fact, you can't get to the good news except through the bad news. Uh, I read a commentator a long time ago, and I still remember what he said. The street to salvation is named suffering. That's not only true for Jesus. That's true for those that continue what he started to. The street that leads to salvation is named suffering. The beginning of the book of Ruth is all about pain and suffering. It's bad news after bad news after bad news. It's almost as if the author says, let's get this thing as deeply in the pit as we can. And by the end of the book, there is celebration, excitement, the high chair is filled, the bassinet's filled, the wedding celebration's going on. Everything's wonderful and full of joy at the end. But in the beginning, we're in the pit. God loves to do that. Good news is always preceded by bad news. And that's how salvation works for every person that's ever experienced it. Here's the story. If you're not willing to admit the bad news, you can't get to the good news. You say, Charles, I don't like that. That's not my plan. That's God's plan. Unless you're willing to admit the bad news. Here's the bad news. You only need to be rescued if you can't help yourself. What's the whole theme of Judges and Ruth? Rescue. But you don't need to be rescued if you can help yourself. You only need to be rescued if you can't help yourself. So here's the picture. If you're on the 35th floor of a high-rise and there's a raging fire from floors 10 through 30, you're on the 35th floor, you need to be rescued. You can't take a wet towel, cover your nose, and run down the steps. You won't make it. Yeah, you can climb to the roof, but unless a helicopter or somebody else comes, you're going to die and experience the barbecue firsthand in the fire. You've got to admit the bad news in order to experience, and that's what trips most people up, right? We've been accustomed to not liking and not thinking about bad news, but unless you admit the bad news, you can't get to the, to the good news. But the whole message of the Bible is only those that know they, they are hopeless and helpless know they need rescue, can experience rescue. That's what God keeps doing in the book of Judges. They're stuck, they're oppressed, they can't help themselves. When they admit that, God then sends the rescuer. But as long as they think they can help themselves, the rescue's not coming. Over and over and over, same thing. One last lesson. Identification is what brings transformation. How did Naomi experience transformation? Because her daughter-in-law, Ruth, said, your land is my land, your God is my God. 
Where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will, or where you die, I will die. I am identifying with you. And the identification changed Naomi's life. Ruth's life is changed because Boaz identifies with her. And he said, I'm not, I'm not just going to stand on the sidelines and let you, you know, pick up grain in my field. I'll do a good job out there. I'll, I'll drop you a little extra. What's he do? He identifies with her and he marries her. And all of her problems become his. And that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? So here's how the gospel works. Until we identify, or before we identify with Jesus, we need to first see him identifying with us. And here's what Jesus says, and you need to hear him say. Your journey is my journey. Your penalty is my penalty. Your past is my past. Your record is my record. Your punishment is my punishment. If you don't hear Jesus say that first to you, you don't know what you're doing when you try to identify with him. But when you hear Jesus say those things to you, we can then respond and say, Jesus, your journey is our journey. Your acceptance with the Father is our acceptance with the Father. The forgiveness you offer is our forgiveness. And your mission is now our mission. You can't identify with him unless you first see him identifying with you. That, friends, is the gospel. The gospel according to Ruth, which leads to the gospel according to Jesus. The themes through the scripture are exactly the same. They're all leading to the same thing and hopefully encouraging and challenging us to get to that same destination. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for these stories from the backstory. Ordinary lives through which we learn extraordinary lessons because they point to the ultimate rescuer. Lord, help us to see Jesus identify with us. Then may we regularly identify with him. Receive what only he gives. And from here on out, continue what he started. We pray.